so I, I am uh, happy to come back. And coming from Berkeley, there was no Oakland A's baseball game today as there was last week. So I, I barely made it last week. And I was thinking about the theme of difficult people and wondering if I could shift to difficult traffic as my preparatory work. Uh, and I checked the newspaper today and um, they're in Texas or something. So, so got here right on time. So just wanted to check how many people were here last time. Okay. And how many people did some kind of practice or gave some attention in the last week to difficult people as they arose in your experience? Okay, that's great. So what I'd like to do is to uh, talk maybe uh, 25 minutes uh, maximum and leave some time for discussion of our uh, work and experience together. And I'd like to explore some of the themes I looked at last time and expand on them and then go a little bit further to deal with uh, some of the questions which came up uh, last time, particularly about even taking the practice of difficult people a little bit further. And so the themes that I brought up last time, which I want to uh, treat a little bit in the way I did last time, but then expand somewhat. The, the first theme was the theme of taking our work with difficult people as uh, an invitation to practice or to inquiry. In other words, to say, okay, I'm interacting with a difficult person. Another chance for learning. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, difficult person. So that's, that's the first theme. And the second theme is to actually look carefully at our experience when we're with difficult people and see what happens. That's the mindfulness work. And the third theme is then how to... Uh, uh, how to practice. The second theme is what do we actually find when we look at how we are, let's say, in a relatively mm, unconscious state. What do we actually find happens? What makes difficult people so difficult? And the third theme is how to practice. And then I want to uh, talk a little bit further also about uh, action in the world and combining the work that I'm suggesting with difficult people, which is more of an inner work. That's what I'm focusing on. And how do we connect that inner work with acting when that's appropriate uh, with difficult people? So the focus will be tonight, especially on the inner work that we do with difficult people. But it's not to say that often and perhaps even a lot of the time we may want to complement that with uh, outer work. And I'll talk more, that's the theme I'll talk about further. So, um, first of all, to, to say that uh, when I'm talking about difficult people, and this came out somewhat in the discussion last time, I'm primarily talking about the kind of, the kind of people that we have a lot in our life that are relatively difficult, but not completely impossible or overwhelming. And I want to maybe differentiate between a few different categories of difficult people, because this, this seems to be necessary. 
And the kind that I'm talking about are the kinds that we encounter in our work, in our families, even in our friendships, and even perhaps sometimes in our own person, that we can be very difficult, you know. And I'm very fond of a, a line which, uh, which Gill uh, says, maybe he says it here a lot, but it's a wonderful line, where he says that if someone tagged around us talking to us the way we talk to ourselves, we would find that person incredibly obnoxious and probably way beyond difficult. <laughs> so I do want to have us have the possibility of saying, I am my own difficult person. That's your option. Uh, but I'm really talking about this uh, basically relatively workable difficult people. I'm not so much talking about the uh, people who are difficult, who are actually trying to harm us. I'm talking about ordinary, everyday difficult people. That's really my main focus. And not so much people who are sort of actively trying to harm us. And not at the moment so much also those who we might be, let's say, politically or ideologically split from, as perhaps some of you have See, this came up also at the end of the discussion. Some people were talking about um, our current leader is a very difficult person for me. And we went into that discussion. And, and I, what I want to say is that uh, the ordinary, everyday difficult people are training grounds for the more, more difficult kinds of interactions we have. And I would say just as the... Uh, Meditation practice that we just did is a training ground for being with difficult people. And so I think if you, if you consider this work with difficult people as actually a form of training, to me that's helpful. It's a form of training that depends on the competences, the abilities that we develop in mindfulness practice. In mindfulness practice, we begin to slow down our habitual patterns, we begin to see what's there. In particular, we start to study the reactive patterns, the patterns that are linked to our suffering. We also open up to our joy and to our deeper understanding. But a large part of what we do in our mindfulness practice is that we really see very closely and we study more than we ever wanted to study. (laughs) our own patterns of reactivity. And this is necessary training for the work with difficult people. And so last time I talked about the practice with difficult people is in some ways not a beginning practice. I would consider it a kind of intermediate practice. And it depends on the ability to be mindful, to see what's happening in the moment, and the growing ability to be able to be mindful, let's say, under stress. Not easy. Normally, when there's stress, what? We revert to well-known survival patterns. And so the mindfulness practice moves into that territory and lets us, even when there's difficulty, start to be able to be present to what's happening. So I found it also very interesting that this this, uh, opening up to... Uh, difficult people as a core practice is something that really is found across traditions. And you don't have to, we don't have to think very far to think of, for example, 
the teachings of Jesus? What are they, if not, uh, in, in large part, about the spiritual practice of being with difficult people? Right? It's about what do you do with your enemies? It's, it's, not, it's actually shifting the old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Remember he says that, that you should actually treat your enemies as deserving of love. It's quite a, quite a radical step, obviously. And he, he also counseled the people who were followers to work with those who are the outcasts of society, the difficult people. And in his context, that was often the lepers or the prostitutes or the people who are the dregs of society. These, in a way, were also, you might say, difficult people. I found also a, a very beautiful uh, poem by the uh, Islamic Sufi teacher, Hafiz. He said this about difficult people. I had to seek the physician because of the pain this world caused me. I could not believe what happened when I got there. I found my teacher. Before I left, he said, up for a little homework yet? I think it's a kind of a modern translation. <laughs> so, so, up for a little homework yet? Okay, I replied. Well then, try thinking of all the people, or no, I'm sorry, try thanking all of the people who have caused you pain. They helped you come to me, to God. That's, that's the teaching of Hafiz. Thank all of the people who caused you pain. And there's a very similar teaching which I mentioned last time that is in the Mahayana tradition from the wonderful text that some of you know probably called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The Bodhisattva being the being who does both the inner work and works in the world to help others. And this great text from the 8th century, which is the Dalai Lama's favorite book ever. He probably has it by his bedside or whatever. Maybe he has it on earphones that he listens. I don't know. And anyway, in this text it says, Just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for he assists me in my conduct of awakening. And he goes on to say, because I am able to practice patience with him, he is worthy of being given the very first, first fruits of my patience, for he is the cause of it. But surely my enemy is not to be venerated, for he intends to cause me harm. How could patience be practiced if, like doctors, people always strove to do me good? And he goes on to say, since patient acceptance is produced, independence on someone with a hateful mind, that person should be worthy of veneration, like the sacred Dharma, because he is the cause of patience. Very different perspective, right? Uh, so this first theme is that we can somehow approach difficult people with the perspective that it can be an opportunity for learning and for practice. So it's almost as if we do this enough and we have a difficult experience and we can actually be a little happy and excited. And somewhat the way that I told you that after a while, not, not right at the beginning, but after a while when I was working with the difficult person that I focused on last time when I was talking, the person who was in a position of power over me at the institution where I'm, where I'm a, a teacher, 
And I would actually, again, not at the beginning, but after a while, I would, I would have meetings every two weeks with him and I would actually have some excitement. Oh, I hope he really comes at me with, you know, this complete stupidity. <laughs> And aggression, because I'll, it's almost like I was going into martial arts training or something, and I was going to have a chance to work with it. And can you imagine how that would shift your your work with uh, difficult people? And after you know, after a few years of that practice, I could bring it to my family. Uh, seriously, and it's really it shifts things because it actually what it does is it uh, uh, it reminds us of the joy of learning even when it's difficult. That's really what it's about. So the second theme was the theme of looking carefully at what we actually find with difficult people. And this is the uh, challenge, really, to look carefully, to look mindfully. And what do we actually find? We find that when we're with difficult people, what's difficult is actually our experience, that difficult people seem to trigger our own difficult experiences. In that sense, you could say that even though difficult people are certainly responsible for their own behavior, there's something in us which is getting triggered. There's something in us which is workable. And that we know that difficult people don't necessarily have to make us lose it. We know that it might be possible. And sometimes we can be with people who were difficult five years ago and we can see what's happening. We don't get triggered so easily. But the important thing is to see that what's difficult about difficult people is our anger, our fear, our pain, our uh, reactivity, our losing it. And so what we can um, explore when we do this practice is we can explore Uh, what's actually happening. We can actually look at our own reactivity and the intention of our practice with difficult people is no different than our intention when we're doing mindfulness practice on the cushion. It's to learn how to develop a non-judgmental, open awareness and compassionate response to whatever's happening. And so I often like to say that the core of our practice, and in a sense, all that we're actually doing when we practice, is we're learning better how to be able to see clearly what's happening in the moment. And then on the basis of that, develop a wise and compassionate response. It just so happens that we have to do that moment after moment after moment. But that's all that we do. It kind of simplifies practice. You know, we have... Endless books about emptiness, about, you know, the intricacies of interdependence. But all that we're doing is developing the ability to be present to what's happening and develop a wise and compassionate response to it on the basis of seeing clearly. That's it. Don't need to read any more books. You know, that that is it. And so we are attempting with difficult people to do the same thing that we do in a cushion. And in particular... We're trying to learn how to be non-reactive and yet responsive. We can work with that distinction, which is often used in English, between reaction and response. Reaction is the automatic, compulsive, often unconscious way that something triggers us. 
And response is the non-reactive and hopefully wise and compassionate way to deal with it. So what we, in effect, try to do is to be non-reactive when something difficult comes our way. Easier said than done. Someone comes at us with a lot of aggression. How do we begin to be non-reactive and responsive? In a way, what we have to learn to do is what we practice on the cushion. When we have a knee pain, we can see how we start to get reactive to that, or we notice that we have a thought which we don't like, you know, or we have a we play over a conversation with a friend and we notice ourselves becoming reactive. What we do in our practice is we try to see clearly what's happening. We try to feel the pain if there's any pain. And then out of that, we can find that we're not as reactive. One phrase that I really like very much to describe what we do with difficult people is that we basically learn not to pass on the pain. Typically, when difficult people come our way and are difficult with us, what, we're difficult back in return, right? (laughs) And so you might say the world goes around. It's almost like this is almost like a definition of samsara or confusion. It's what obviously drives whatever, the Middle East or Iraq right now, which is in such turmoil. It's the pattern of pain leading to further pain. Again, it's the way that when we're unconscious and compulsive, we pass on the pain. And we do that with difficult people. Difficult people come towards us and we're typically reactive. We're either reactive aggressively and outwardly or or we may be aggressive inwardly, either towards ourselves or towards them. But what we learn to do when we uh, actually see uh, and work with our experience better is we learn not to pass on the pain with difficult people. And that permits a wiser and more compassionate response. So you might just reflect now, just for a moment, if you take, take a minute or two. If you were here last time, think of how you might in the last week have been with a difficult, uh, how you might have been with a difficult person. And if you weren't here last time, think of what, may have happened in the last either few days or week. Think of what is actually, think of an actual experience with a so-called difficult person, someone who, particularly someone that you know on an ongoing basis who is sort of chronically difficult. I don't think I have to explain it more, right? (laughs) So take take about a minute and just reflect on if you've had experiences like that and particularly if you tried to bring your practice to bear on that situation. So I want, to, I want to move to the third theme of what is the actual practice again. And again, I think we should consider this to be training. It's a training that we, as it were, we come back here, we, we debrief. We'll have a debriefing session in a little while. We debrief about the difficult person. 
and it's something that one could do with one's friends or could form a small group because it really can make um, a lot of our daily lives more into practice. And so when we were um, talking in the discussion last time, I came to see that there's almost like a um, developmental sequence of doing this practice with difficult people. The, the starting point is really setting an intention. It might be the intention that I talked about, like I'm going in to have this meeting, I know this person's often difficult, and I set an intention to bring my practice to the situation. You know, we have to start with some kind of intention. Then I can notice with the experience, and it may be that in the beginning of doing this work, within 10 seconds we lose it. Depends on the degree, as it were, the degree of difficulty of the difficult person. But often when we're with the difficult person or situation, our best intentions are good for a little while, and then we kind of lose it. And then, what? Um, A little while later we say, well, I think I was pretty reactive that time. And that's, that's part of the learning cycle, okay? That's what we were exploring last time. That's part of the learning cycle. Because once we set the intention this way, there's almost like a, a sequence of learning. And it's fine if we lose it a lot of the time. I have to say that where I have felt myself learning with difficult people, a lot of the times I just got lost. That's when the reactive patterns are, are powerful. So I think it's fine if we are doing this practice and we notice either late in the interaction or even afterwards or even whatever, that evening, or even, hopefully not, but in the middle of the night and you say, oh my gosh, does does anyone wake up thinking about difficult people in the middle of the night? It's probably a favorite difficult middle of the night theme. (laughs) And so then there's a sequence when we keep on doing the practice. Sometimes we start noticing in the middle of the interaction, oh, I'm being reactive. That is incredible sign of progress, right? We can actually notice when we're in the interaction, I'm being reactive. And if we can then try to bring the same quality of mindfulness that we'd have on the cushion, say, okay, what's actually happening in my mind? What's actually happening in my body? What's going on? What's the pattern here? And I I think I recommended last time the, the ancient meditation technique of taking a break in the middle of a difficult interaction, <laughs> particularly if you're in a public sphere going to the bathroom. This is an important technical um, <laughs> what, practice, technique, uh, of, of, because what we have to do is find some way to gain space in the middle of our reactivity. And as they say, use any means necessary. <laughs> Bathroom breaks, you know, um, saying, um, sorry, I'm, um, I have to attend to something or whatever. But the, the, the idea is to find ways to gain some further presence with the situation and to come back and to keep on coming back to mindfulness. So after a while, we start being on the lookout for our patterns and we start being able to study them more closely. This may come with also watching the, uh, the, react, the form of reactivity when we're on the cushion because one of the things about difficult people is that they're difficult even when they're not present. <laughs> they have this great power <laughs> you know, to actually influence when they could be miles and even 
thousands of miles away. It's pretty amazing. And we can be sitting there stewing with the difficult person and they are, you know, whatever, sitting on a beach in Florida or something. And we're just having a difficult time. So uh, we can study the, the reactivity patterns on the cushion. So after a while, we start being very interested in the patterns of reactivity. And we start seeing that there are, are some main patterns that we have with this difficult person. We start being interested in the whole sequence. What is the trigger? What's the stimulus? What happens to me with this particular stimulus? We start to be able to study it more closely, both uh, on the cushion, as it were, and in more protected environments, and then increasingly in the moment in the situation. The key, one of the keys of this practice is being able to touch the pain that's present with the difficult person. And so I think it's also a mark as we do this practice more, it becomes possible in the moment I'm having a difficult experience with this person and I can actually try to be aware of the pain there. And if it helps you to say to yourself, ouch, no, just to, you know, just to notice that there's pain there and to touch it, because this is actually what's healing. This is actually what's transformative, is to see the patterns, to touch the pain there. And what that does is it gives some ability not to be driven by the pain, because most of our reactivity is when we're driven by our reactions to something painful, to something difficult. And as we start to study this more, we start to have space around the pain, even in the moment that we're interacting, so that we can actually not be so driven by it, not be so uh, moved by it. And as we progress, we may be able to, when we're with a difficult person, in the moment, know that you've been triggered, watch the pattern, know the pain, and with that kind of space around it, it's more and more possible to act in a responsive way to act without just what I was calling passing on the pain or without just using one of our defense mechanisms, which would be like to withdraw or to, you know, like I was saying last time, my favorite defense mechanism is to withdraw and assume an air of moral superiority and judge the other person. <laughs> Many of you may also have that as a favorite way to deal with difficult people. It's a real one, you know, whether it's, you know, your boss, your partner, or the president of the United States, you know. So I just wanted to say one last thing before opening to discussion, that even though I'm talking here very much about the inner work of difficult people, I think that as we do this more, we also try to balance that inner work with the outer action or the outer responsiveness. And I think that there's, and this is also where we can move into the sphere of acting in a community or a group, an organization, or even a larger society. I think that's what's called for in these situations and what's called for in terms of social change work is exactly the same kind of work. You know, that you could interpret people like Gandhi and King as teaching about how to be with difficult people and trying to bring that to a larger uh, sphere. What this suggests to me is that there's something very, very crucial in the ability of people to 
do this inner work and also act at the same time. In fact, I think for me, this is a, new, a newly emerging paradigm of activism. Because so much of what we find among activists is just reactivity for the right cause. And one could question whether that just keeps the cycles going. Whether it just keeps that passing on the pain with the feeling of there being justice served. And it's a complicated topic, and I want to say that, and not to say that everything can be summarized in that quick analysis, but I think that there's something very important about learning in our own laboratory with everyday difficult people and then bringing that outward into larger community issues and then into the larger society. And that's really, I think, one way to understand our practice, that we have first the laboratory of our individual practice just with ourselves. As we mature in our practice, we can bring that mindfulness and that wisdom and the compassion to our everyday interactions. And as we so do, I think then we can bring it into the larger and more complex spheres of our life, working with other people who are inspired in that way. And so I think that this, this practice of working with difficult people is the most important practice that could be connected with social change and uh, really affecting the pain of the world, the pain of the society. And so I, I, I invite that perspective, you know, for you to see. Really what it does is it connects the different parts of our lives. It says that my individual practice is not disconnected from the way I am with my friends, my family, my workmates, and that's not disconnected from my participation in larger society. We bring those different dimensions together and we use ourselves as a laboratory to learn because I think it's basically about working with reactivity and learning how not to pass on the pain, but in whatever sphere we're working in to respond with the best wisdom and compassion we have. So I'll stop there and, and open it up to our discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you, please. Okay. Thank, thank you so much for bringing that up. And I think, I, I imagine that most, most of the people could identify a lot with your question. So, so thank you for that. Uh, and I, and I, I want to remind us that uh, I said from my own experience, 
I had to practice with my boss before I moved to my family <laughs> that family uh, are some of the most charged situations. I remember, I remember Ramdas once saying that sometimes he felt as if, you know, with people know who Ramdas is, you know, the, he said even with whatever, 30 or 40 years of spiritual experience, sometimes it felt like it went out the window with his relatives. So I just want to remember that this is some of the most charged material. But yes, I, I think that it's, first of all, think of it as a practice. So think of it as something that you're not always going to get it right. You're going to experiment. It's something to learn about. But, but definitely, yes, it seems to uh, often be very appropriate to set boundaries or limits. You know, and to, I know that that's often been important for me sometimes uh, in terms of how long do I visit you know, and to be wise about that. Do I visit for three days? Do I visit for seven days? I know that at a certain, everyone has a, a tipping point, <laughs> right? And you have to know what that is. And I think it's very, you know, now if you have a conflict with your partner, let's say, who, about what the limit should be, that's another issue. Um, but yeah, it seems what we're looking for are ways to bring more awareness to what's happening in an inner way. So it's great to do meditation practice. And we're looking, the place where we can do this work is where we're not overwhelmed, where it's somewhat workable. And what I'm hearing from your situation is that uh, it's often the case that it doesn't sound that workable. It's just overwhelming and it's just too hard, right? And so, yeah, too close, yeah. And so I think it is helpful as much as it's possible. Sometimes it's not possible, but as much as it's possible, it does sound wise. It's basically, you know, it's, it's giving, it's saying, I can't really practice unless the conditions are a little bit better. In other words, I can't, it's not really workable until I, unless I have a little more space. Otherwise, I feel overwhelmed or suffocated or, or whatever metaphor you use. And so I think it could be very, very wise to set boundaries because it doesn't do... Again, you're, you're not the only person involved, so I'm sure it's more complex. But it can be very wise to set those boundaries because it's not doing any of you any good for you to be reactive, right? Does that help some? It's a start, yeah. Yeah. Please, yeah. 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 Well, well, both. Yeah. The qu- the question is what when I'm referring to um, touching the pain as part of the practice of being with difficult people. Does that refer to uh, my own pain, and if so, does it mean just feeling it or naming it? Also, does it refer to um, sort of feeling the pain of the other. Does that, does that capture most of it? Yeah. Um, primarily, it refers, to, uh, as I'm talking about it, to working with one's own experience and learning how to, because it's looking at our own reactivity. And the reactivity, as we study it more, we can see that it actually, um, it comes out of pain that is... Uh, that we don't, that we often don't feel with mindfulness or, or awareness. Often we don't even know it's there, 
You know, if you think of some kinds of reactivity where someone, like one example, simple one would just be where someone says something mean to us and we just say something mean right back, right away. When we actually study that, there's actually a moment that's, that's actually painful, but we're hardly aware of it. We're just, we're just using our defense mechanisms because we sense that someone's getting close to a painful area. And so it's very valuable to uh, be able to touch what's painful. Like in the examples that I gave, when, when um, a person in authority did not listen to me, uh, I would just start being reactive. But when I actually inquired into the pattern, I could find that there was some pain. And so a lot of what this is about is that there's unacknowledged pain with a lot of these situations, and we don't actually feel it. And uh, my own experience, and I think this is also more or less the theory, as it were, behind a lot of psychotherapy, as well as a lot of uh, social change work, is that when we actually touch the pain, we stop being so reactive. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt anymore, but it, there, there's, um, there's a way that when we can actually touch it and feel it, we can, we, we can work with it. And, and often a lot of healing can occur actually. We can actually, because there's this practice, the, the principle of healing is that an open non-judgmental awareness of what's painful actually has tremendous healing potential. That's, that's the principle we work with in all of our practice. And so, yes, naming it is very important. Feeling it is more important, directly experiencing it. And again, this practice works by a kind of repetition of doing it over and over again. It's not just once. It's not even just five times. It may be a hundred times, five hundred times. And that starts to, that starts to shift and it starts to it also, when we can be aware of it, we can, again, we, we stop being quite so automatic. So if someone says something to me and I'm, I'm tuned in to that it's painful, I suddenly have some space and I don't have to just say something nasty right back. I can actually ask myself, this is painful, what should I do? This is painful, what's the wise and compassionate response? I think that as one does this, and as one touches one's own pain in relation to reactivity, my experience is that I actually tune into the pain of others as the basis for their own reactivity. It's pretty interesting that my own, my own experience, particularly over a period of time, I did a lot of practice with uh, judgmental tendencies. And I just watched my own tendency to be judgmental like 5,000, 10,000 times over several years. I recommend it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this, is, this is what this practice is about. Again, this is if you want something quicker, there's something down the street probably that's quicker and more expensive. <laughs> uh, but what I found is that when I did this practice and I touched into how when I was being judgmental, it was almost always following something that was painful. I started to tune in to the pain from judgmental people in relation to me, which was amazing. I, for a long time, I wanted to be around judgmental people because I could really, there was something empathic going on. And I could, you know, and some of you may, may have that experience sometimes. If you're really tuned into your own um, suffering, you can be very um, empathic and know because so many people, when they're being reactive to us, they're coming out of pain, right? 
the art, and we don't, we get hooked by it, right? That's the dynamic. We get hooked by their coming out of pain. And it hooks into our pain, and as it were, the race is on, right? It's kind of like two organisms, each with pain, doing this dance that leads to more pain. And when one person works through the reactivity, the dance can't go on in the same way. That doesn't mean you don't get aggression, but it doesn't go on in the same way. And we talked last time about how actually it's very hard to keep being aggressive towards someone if the other person doesn't react back. You know, and, and things can happen. But we also can be empathic towards that person, which is very, very interesting. It's a, I think this is, this is compassion. And we can actually start tuning in to how the other person's reactivity comes out of pain. We can experience that in a direct way when we practice enough like this. Please, yeah. Have you ever found that uh, your, your compassion and your empathy has resulted in them being better? Or they just continue being as yeah, well we, yeah we, I think we explored that question like that a little bit last time. Did everyone hear the question? But, but, but not in the, quite in the same way. Uh-huh. Um, have I ever found that, uh, what was it? That Your open attitude towards that, them has helped them to be... Yeah, that my open attitude has helped the whatever reactive or aggressive <coughs> person to, to shift, definitely. Because it's like, like I was saying, what we start to learn is that these relationships of reactivity depend on both people being reactive. That it's very hard to, for one person, I mean, there are masochistic people, you know, but generally most people need the uh, mutual reactivity to keep their own reactivity going. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think this applies to communities and even nations, you know, if you, if you want to take it that far. Uh, that the Palestinians require the Israelis to keep going. You know, that's why it's a system. You see, it's a system. And when one starts dismantling the system, you know, in an interpersonal way, it's the system of reactivity. When you start dismantling that, the whole system can't keep on going in the same way. And so, yes, I have found personally that when I, in some ways, work through my own reactivity, that the other person uh, sometimes... um, reverts to good behavior. It's so I mean, so not always immediately. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's possible that uh, it's something, I mean, I think you can understand the concept, right? And you can study it in yourself. But it's definitely, it's, um, it's, very, it's very interesting. Yeah. Please, yeah. Maybe these will be the last two. And if you could be a little brief because we're, we're getting about time. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just can make a comment and make it really brief. Okay. Okay. more successful in terms of this, this, of interactions, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, let's see. The um, generally, mindfulness practice serves to make us familiar with the patterns of our reactivity. And so any practice, so, so I think the, some actual techniques that can be helpful, maybe this is more what you're asking, would be to actually try to give some precision to the labeling and the noting of your thought patterns, particularly the patterns of your reactivity. So one can sometimes be very general with meditation. I'm meditating here. I have a long discussion, kind of semi-argument with my boss, you know, and I just say thinking and then go back to my breath. Well, that's one technique, but if you actually start to identify it and start to say, okay, and call it whatever, um, discussion with boss, give it a label, and then when it keeps coming, try to study it and, and give it some precision and try to actually look and see what's happening. You know, and if it goes on for a while and it's a strong feeling, you can use the technique of trying to see uh, what's it feel like in the body? What does it even feel like in the heart? That one of the things that's useful to do with repetitive thought patterns that happen a lot is to actually check into the bodily and the emotional dimension in your daily practice, in your, in your sitting practice. We sometimes call this uh, the practice of dropping down because there's going to be a lot of the reactive uh, patterns we have, which will manifest in repetitive thought patterns, are actually being driven by some unacknowledged pain. And sometimes if we can be in the heart and actually feel, just listen for what that is. You know, I suppose I've just had, I've just spent 10 minutes having, a, a, you know, rehearsing a dialogue that's kind of unpleasant with my boss, okay? I've just done that. Can I then say, okay, what's there? What's there? And this takes some, it's not a matter of figuring out or analyzing, but actually listening. What's actually there? What's actually there in my heart? And that kind of practice can, can actually lead sometimes to um, some recognition. You can actually feel, oh, I feel angry. I don't like being treated like that. Or I feel sad. I wish it were different. And that can, those can start to give, uh, bring some light to the pattern, which maybe formerly was just, God, I'm reactive, and that's it. You start to bring some precision to it. You can see, oh, there's sadness, there's anger. Here's what I do when there's sadness or anger. I go in this way and so forth. And you start to actually see the pattern more clearly. So that's one thing. Another practice would be uh, the loving kindness practice is kind of an antidote. You know, and I think it's very good to complement the mindfulness practice with the loving-kindness practice, both for ourselves and for the other person. It works in a little bit different way. Mostly what I've been describing is the insight practice of seeing our patterns clearly and that, and that permitting uh, wise and compassionate action. One of the things that can sort of ser- serve a little bit like a timeout is to actually forget about the patterns and just do some metta, some loving kindness for ourselves and the other person. In certain situations, that is exactly what's called for. So if you feel like you're getting really, really stuck with the trying to see the pattern, do the loving kindness practice. You know, and that could even extend to one thing I've sometimes done is give gifts to people with whom I have difficult relationships. 
that it kind of cuts through certain things. So those are a few practices to, to work with. You're welcome. Maybe the last one, if, if we could be, be yeah. brief. Yeah. I wasn't so brief. But <laughs> a more subtle kind of uh, mm-hmm. looking at someone as being difficult. There was this woman in yoga class, and no matter how much, how many times I tried to engage her, she always had a real serious face. And you have a judgment that everybody who comes in yoga should be happier, right? So there's all sorts of judgments going yeah. on. And uh, after a while, it was interesting just to keep putting it out there with this person. She's now to a place where she's opened up, her heart is opened up, and we're able to engage in communication. But it took several months. But something about not giving up, that Mm -hmm. people sometimes just need more space. Mm -hmm. And to complement that by uh, looking at that judgmental quality in yourself, right? To complement it with that. So, to, because uh, it's nice to give people the room to be themselves in yoga classes. <laughs> and yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But I realized I was also coming from yeah. my own past pain about being shy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So ideally, your own, you know, working both with your judgments takes you in. It's kind of like what I was describing before. It can take you in where you actually feel your pain, maybe your past pain, and it evokes some compassion for what at least you imagine to be her present pain. So, um, although it's tricky to think that one really knows what's there. <laughs> so just be a little cautious with that. But, um, but, but generally it sounds, yeah, um, the loving kindness or that sound, sounds like a great compliment with the practice for, uh, on your own self. Well, I could stay here for quite a while and talk about difficult people, but for some of you who need to leave, that would make me a difficult person for you. (laughs) So I think what I'd like to do is just to finish with the 30 seconds or a minute of uh, uh, sitting, and then uh, I'll stay here a little while if anyone wants to talk further. I'm sorry, I had this wonderful story to tell you that took five minutes, and I have to do it another time. (laughs) So... So just to be present to... what may have touched you, from the sitting 
for the talk or discussion. And to, to invite if there are any intentions for your own practice, your experience. Or there may be something that sort of surfaces as a question. How can I work with this? Or what's that about? And you might have the intention just to explore this more deeply. letting any intentions for the next period of time be present. If you want to bring this more into practice in your life, also saying, how am I going to do this? What's going to support me? How might I I bring this uh, practice more into my experience? Perhaps by setting intentions in the morning or before meeting with people who are difficult. And so let us um, finish just by remembering, as should be really clear from this theme, that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. And may our work, our practice, our lives, our action in the world, may it serve uh, for the benefit of all, and for the awakening and healing and freedom of all. Thank you very much. I look forward to my next time here.